Reverend Jeremy Hall. Thank you, Senator Jeremy. I appreciate the kind introduction and the kind invitation to be with you this morning. I've told a few folks I've got um, on my Baptist bucket list to visit Maranatha. So it's, it is an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to be in this pulpit and with you all this morning. So do any of y'all keep up with those made-up holidays? Because we got the real holidays, right? But then we've got all sorts of made-up holidays all across our calendar. Like um, October 1st, apparently, is International Coffee Day. I like that one. That's right. It's also National Homemade Cookies Day. Uh, October 1 is a good day. Uh, it, it is also World Vegetarian Day. So depending on where you sit, you can have your cookies or your salad. It's fine. Um, I don't normally keep up with these things, but I think October is really fun. There's some odd ones, like uh, October 3rd is Virus Appreciation Day. Uh, after the past couple years we've had, we should probably take that one off the calendar. Uh, October 4 is National Kale Day. It's the opposite of National Homemade Cookie Day. Um, National Kale Day. I don't know if that's a day of celebration or mourning. Um, October 9 is Moldy Cheese Day. Wow. Very exciting. Yeah. 12 is Take Your Teddy Bear to Work Day. Uh, 24th is count, count Your Buttons Day. I didn't know I needed to do that, but hey, good to know. Uh, today, the 23rd, is National Mole Day. Don't know who picks these things, right? The 29th is Cat Day, and there's, there's tons more. They're everywhere across the calendar, especially in October. Everyone wants to get in before the important holidays start. Uh, it seems almost every day has been claimed by some group or idea. And, and as it turns out, today is one of my favorite days on the calendar because of uh, this guy from the 17th century named Bishop Usher. He was the leader of the church in Ireland during the, the mid-17th century. And he's one of the various church leaders who have attempted to divine the exact age of the earth, the exact date of creation. And, and he shares this pursuit with a lot of names that we might recognize, like the Venerable Beatty, Johannes Kepler, and Sir Isaac Newton. Now, of course, they all come to different dates and different conclusions and different ages. Uh, but I really like... Bishop Usher's date, because it's so specific. So he, he starts, he works backwards with known dates and some Bible dates and some speculative reasoning until he finds himself at the creation of the earth at October 23rd, 4004 BC at 11 a.m. A little specific, right? And, and while I don't see many people celebrating creation day, I wish they would, uh, this and very few people cling to this specific dating scheme. It kind of went out of vogue in the 19th century. There are still people who claim this date. But I think we should celebrate, somewhere on the calendar, Creation Day. And with this thought in our minds, I'd like to take us uh, to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 3. I'll read that in just a second. I want to set it up a little bit. You see, I like James. James is a fascinating little book. And it is a little book. Uh, it's a collection of brief and often scathing sermonettes from the half-brother of Jesus. He was a pastor to the church in Jerusalem until his martyrdom during the chaotic time leading up to the Roman-Jewish war. Just for the record, this little bit of his story is mentioned in the Bible and 
extra-biblical texts, both Jewish and Roman historical documents talk about this. These were particularly hard times for Christians in Jerusalem. James's importance to the early church, it's highlighted in both the book of Acts and Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he's referred to as a pillar of the church. James had led the early church, all new Christians, through these hard times, through persecution and trial and suffering and death. James was a pastor who led from the front, is taking the hits with the rest of his people. And in doing so, he had earned the right to be heard. And not only that, he had earned the right not to pull any of his punches. He doesn't sugarcoat any of his convictions. James knows how hard and how short life can be. So he shoots straight. He brings us these 12 little sermons, these 12 pointed, sometimes hard to hear teachings as these fresh and timely words for his church, and they still speak to us now. But as you're reading this book, you might recognize some of the language. It might cue up some other Bible for you. And that's because a lot of the work that James is doing, he's taking the book of Proverbs and he's reading it through the lens of his encounters with Jesus and through the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. So keep those in mind when you hear James. So enough set up. Let's look at James. We'll start in chapter 3, 13, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 3. So starting at 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions in your heart? Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every kind of evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Submit yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desires, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Jumping to verse 7. Submit yourselves. There it is again. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and God will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So you hear the Proverbs language, right? The, the leading questions, the, the pithy instructions, all of that wisdom talk. This is Proverbs stuff right here. So I think we need to take a moment, since we're dealing with wisdom language, and talk about wisdom and how the writer 
of James and the writer of Proverbs, how they would have thought about this term. Because it's loaded. It's a big idea in the Hebrew scriptures. The, I did just finish school two weeks ago, so I'm still, still into dropping a little bit of Hebrew on people from time to time. So hope you're okay with that. The, the Hebrew word at play here is chokmah, wisdom. And the people who wrote the Old Testament, they believed that there was this creative force that held all reality together. This force was mysterious, it's powerful, it's benevolent, an aspect of God and a tool wielded by God. It's the means by which God designed, ordered, built, and governs all of the creation. This force, they they called it wisdom, chokmah. With this wisdom, this wisdom, it belongs to God. God has made it available to human beings, allowing them to create alongside God as they produce a more just and lovely world. When people use their natural wisdom, their natural abilities and gifts to make a better world, to make a better place, they're they're tapping into that chokmah wisdom of God. Whenever people use their abilities in selfish ways to, to hurt others, they're working against the wisdom of God. So you can be in line with God's wisdom or you can be opposed to it. You exhibit that you have this wisdom, that you have access to, to God's wisdom, to Hokma, by joining God in creating a better world. So James starts off this section by talking about these two kinds of wisdom, only one of which is true wisdom. There's what we might call, what we might think of as conventional understandings, a conventional wisdom, a, a tool fashioned out of knowledge and sharpened over the wheel of time. I, I recently uh, asked some teenagers about wisdom. And the best answer I got from them, I think it's a pretty good one, they defined wisdom as applied knowledge. But you can apply your knowledge in a lot of different ways, can't you? There's a lot of different directions. You can use it towards a lot of different ends. So you can take your skill, that applied knowledge, that wisdom, and you can wield it to build a really beautiful life for you and yours. You can take that wisdom and you can use it to win you could win and win and win, and you could, you could uh, invent a bear mousetrap and let the world beat a path to your door. But if that path leads only to you, it's a dead end. If wi- the wisdom you collect only allows you to climb the ladder, to climb over others, to acquire wealth, to build a better life just for yourself, to navigate the system, to satisfy your ambition, James calls that wisdom earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That is, utterly opposed to the wisdom of God. But James points to another kind of wisdom as well, one that he says comes from heaven. This is that chokmah wisdom of Proverbs, the creative driving force behind all order, goodness, and beauty, the means by which God creates and holds it all together. James says that this power is accessible in our lives, that 
we can utilize this wisdom to join God at work in the world. Well, preacher, what does this kind of heavenly wisdom look like? How do we do it? Easy, right? James says it's pure, peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, impartial and submissive, just like we all naturally do, right? Yeah, no. Um, So how does James suggest that we get there? Well, Well, he kind of winks at an answer. With all of the dog whistles cueing us back to Proverbs, specifically his talk about submission to God, I think he's pointing us back to Proverbs chapter 9 where the teacher tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the first step. The fear of the Lord is the first step towards a new way of being human, connected to the creative force behind everything. It is this step of submission that unlocks wisdom for each of us. In the step of submission, as we discover this new kind of wisdom, we submit to God's ethics instead of our own, to God's values over our own, to God's will over our own. To this point, the Jewish philosopher and theologian Abraham Heschel, he writes, wisdom is the ability to look at things from the point of view of God. The fear of the Lord is the start the first step that gives us the courage and the authority to start to forge the weapons of our wisdom and creativity into tools to use for the work of God's will. The fear of the Lord, the submission to the will of God is the first step towards beating our swords into plowshares. Then James makes it uh, personal. James is about to come at us here. He starts quoting Jesus You have not because you ask not. We're familiar with this line uh, that James pairs with the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, knock. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. But here comes the bitter pill from James. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. It's like when you ask, when you seek, when you knock. Nothing happens because you're not operating in chokmah. You're not operating in that wisdom of God, but rather in the world's wisdom. So how about this? Does anyone remember the prayer of Jabez? Do you remember that little book? Yeah, it was popular for a little while, right? Uh, It was a hit back in the early 2000s based on two verses dedicated to King Jabez in 1 Chronicles, where he prays, God, bless me and expand my borders. Keep me safe from pain and harm. In case you forgot, that's it. That's all of Jabez's story. Um, And then all of a sudden in the early 2000s, here comes the cultural sensation of people praying the prayer of Jabez. Bless me and expand my borders. But let me ask you, what are Jabez's borders today? Uh, They're they're about six foot by three foot. He's in a box in the ground somewhere. If your energy is being devoted to the expansion of your territory, God is likely disinterested. 
because this isn't a story about your empire. This is a story about God's kingdom. Let me tell you what the, uh, the Bible says about all the energy, all the creativity, all the wisdom being spent on expanding our domain. Ecclesiastes in the wisdom literature, it, it tells us that it's smoke, vapor, mist. Your translation might say meaningless. Jesus says it prospers a man nothing to gain the whole world if it's going to be at the cost of his soul. Paul, talking about his own life and his own achievements and his own experiences, says all my best efforts and deeds are like garbage and filth. Luke, writing an Acts about David, King David's accomplishments, he boils it all down to two lines, the second of which is, then he went into the ground and experienced decay. And then here we have James, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every kind of evil. This is the best that earthly wisdom can achieve. Smoke, filth, gilded boxes in the ground. But we find full life, purpose, fulfillment when we submit our will to God's and get in line with God's wisdom, with God's chokmah at work in the world in joining God to make a better world. When we do this, our actions take on kingdom meaning. We find our place in the kingdom of God when we use our wisdom, our creativity, and our skill to bring glory to God and to make a better, more just world. This is good news. It's an invitation, and it's a promise. Paul understood this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I'm confident of this, that the one who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, when we, when we read this passage, it's really important that we understand how writers like Paul use the Bible. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee, if you don't remember. That means he's extremely well-educated. He's trained in Hebrew language and history and philosophy and theology and, and scriptures by famous rabbis that, whose works we still have. Some of Paul's someone of Paul's educational level at his time, they basically have the whole Old Testament memorized. He knows all of it. And like many other Bible authors, he assumes that you, the reader, that, that you have most of it memorized too. And so writers like Paul, they wink and they hint and they nudge and they, they make little subtle points at other passages when they write so that this shared language will activate your imagination to expand on what they're saying and, and taking you, connecting you to other parts of the Bible. So when Paul uses words like this, began, good, complete, he's hinting, he's nudging at something. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Began, good, complete. Do you hear it? This is Genesis language. This is creation language. The God who spoke light in the universe wants to do the same through us. The gospel introduces the possibility. Possibilities broader than anything we've previously seen. The gospel introduces love greater than anything we've previously felt. The gospel introduces creativity and innovation beyond that that we could imagine. The gospel introduces life more vivid and full than the world has ever seen. 
And when we say yes to this gospel, when we say yes to this Jesus, we invite this life, these possibilities, this love, this creativity into our own lives. We become the raw materials from which God will build his kingdom. God has started a good work in us. And when God starts things, God finishes them. Today, I believe that God has unleashed that same energy that created and animated the cosmos into the lives of believers, both as individual Christians and as the church collectively. God has made his wisdom, his chokmah, available to us. In Christ, God has invited us to a new way of being human in the world, one where we can live in loving, peaceful relationship with God and with each other, and one where we can join God as partners in the reconciliation of all things, in his creative wisdom, in his ongoing creation of the world and of us. A partnership where his wisdom is available for us to use to bring about more beauty, more love, more truth, more community, more unity, more justice, more peace, as we follow Jesus deeper into the kingdom. Maybe you're here today and you desperately want to follow Jesus. Maybe you're madly in love with the gospel and devoted to the church, but, but the rest of your life seems to be out of control. Or, or maybe you want to take that next step of commitment and service, but you don't know if you have the energy or the time or the resources to pull it off. Maybe you're here today and, and you've been doing this whole Christian thing for a while now, and you feel like you've maybe gone off course or something. Maybe you feel like you've lost the favor of God or it's become routine and that your faith life is boring and stale and you're wondering what happened to that person you were at the start. Or, or maybe you're here and you haven't made that decision yet to follow Jesus and you're wondering if it's worth it, if this is a safe place to cast your lot, if this Jesus can be trusted. Here is the promise from the Bible for us today. When God starts something, God doesn't leave it unfinished. Because when you say yes to Jesus, all things become possible. When you say yes to Jesus, God's wisdom becomes accessible to you. Because when you say yes to Jesus, a new world becomes possible. Because when you say yes to Jesus, you become a partner with God in the reconciliation of all things. And because when you say yes to Jesus, every day is creation day. Amen.